to John 6. John 6, as we continue our series on Calvinism this morning, we take up the fourth point in sequence. Irresistible grace, we've seen total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and now irresistible grace. John 6, verse 22 through verse 45. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat but that his disciples had gone away alone. And there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate their bread after the Lord had given them thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, well, what then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. And of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from me, from the Father, comes to me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's call upon him for help to understand. Father, Jesus has commanded us in his word this morning to seek not after bread that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Make us seekers of that food by grace and the operation of your Holy Spirit. In order to do that, Father, unfold these words. Cause their entrance to give us light and understanding. This we cry through the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.
You're in an immediate communication disadvantage when your opponents set the talking points for the debate. It causes an immediate communication disadvantage when the opponent gets to define the terms of the discussion. I'll give you an example. Classic textbook example that you will find is a question, when did you stop taking illegal drugs? When did you stop taking illegal drugs? You see, you're at an immediate disadvantage there. Now, because the assumption of the question is that you were taking illegal drugs, whether you ever had taken any illegal drugs in your entire life, the burden of proof is on you. Now, that's a little bit better than the crass, more crass question that's often in the textbooks, which I'm sure some of you are aware of, is when did you stop beating your wife? You can never answer that question correctly. You see, the assumption is in the wrong side, and now it's as if you are guilty until proven innocent. You have to dig your way out of that, redefine your terms according to the terms that they've established and set up. Now, I, I bring that up, that, that immediate communication disadvantage into the picture here, because that's really what we're dealing with when we come to the, uh, to the fourth point of Calvinism this morning, and the, the Calvinistic acronym TULIP, Irresistible Grace. We are an immediate... Uh, Communication disadvantage because it's negative. It says irresistible grace. Where does such an idea come from? And, and, and the idea in, in this particular way of summarizing it has been framed uh, over again, uh, over uh, on the other side by our opponents, the Arminians, who were arguing in the 17th century uh, that grace was resistible. Article 4 of the Arminian Remonstrance, which was written for the purpose of clarifying dis, uh, points of doctrine and uh, initiating a debate within the Dutch church in Holland and the Reformed churches. Uh, this is what they said, but as respects the mode of the operation of this grace, it is not irresistible. Inasmuch as it was written concerning many have resisted the Holy Ghost. You see, they define the terms of the debate, and the particular way in which we summarize our point of view often is a negative way of saying what we really believe. And they say, well, grace is irresistible, and what they mean by that is, first of all, there's this concept which Arminianism teaches, it, uh, the concept is termed prevenient grace, literally a grace that comes before. And they argue that as a result of the, of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that a certain kind of grace is poured out on all mankind. And that this grace uh, sort of counteracts total depravity. And they say, now that grace is a grace that is operative to salvation. And they say, that grace can be rejected. I know I'm giving you a lot of information here in the introduction, but this is all part of the problem with how we explain this point of view and how other people perceive it. Because first of all, we don't even believe in provenient grace. The Bible absolutely nowhere teaches that there is such a grace that is poured out on all men. The term is not there and the concept is not in the Bible at all. But when we talk about grace that is irresistible, we're talking about a grace that is sovereign. It is a grace that is multifaceted. 
It is a grace that cannot be accessed or acquired by uh, the force of a person's will either because uh, men are steeped in depravity and because of that they are completely unable to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus apart from God's sovereign intervention in their heart. But if God does sovereignly intervene in the heart, you can make no mistake about it, that grace will never be resisted. When God aims to bring a sinner to Jesus, He does it. And you can see that certainty expressed in verse 37 when Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. If you want to know what irresistible grace is in a nutshell, it's what Jesus says in John 6.37, All who the Father gives me will come to me. It's an absolute certainty. It's not a point for debate. Jesus says they will come. That's what we mean when we say irresistible grace. We can restate it another way. We call it efficacious grace. Or we can call it grace that always accomplishes God's purpose. Let's explain what we mean by that. From John chapter 6, a wonderful chapter uh, to illustrate this great biblical truth from. We're going to jump into this chapter in the middle of John's report about a couple of miracles which then lead to this conversation that Jesus has with these Jews in a synagogue in Capernaum. We're going to jump into verse 22 and you see there that word at the outset of the verse, the next day. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side came seeking Jesus. You say next day after what? Well, we have to do a little bit of background work here. The next day after what? The next day after Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Your Bible probably has a header at the beginning of John 6, which says, 5,000 fed. There's something that stands behind that even that we need to get into for a moment. It really sets up the context here. You might be asking yourself, why were there 5,000 people seeking Jesus? That sounds like a megachurch, doesn't it? 5,000 people seeking Jesus this Sunday. How did they get there? Why were they there? Well, the answer is because Jesus has recently sent out his disciples. We know this from Mark chapter 6. Jesus has recently sent out his disciples uh, on a preaching mission. And we're told in Mark chapter 6 verse 7 that Jesus uh, commissioned them to preach and gave them authority over unclean spirits. A few verses later... The success of that mission is reported. We're told that Herod was so alarmed at the success of this mission that he thought John the Baptist had been raised from the dead and came back preaching. I mean, he couldn't believe the spectacular success, the response, the the fact that the, the, the preaching of the apostles so resonated in the hearts of people who heard it that they were flocking to the disciples and they were following them wherever they went because they preached the truth and they were healing people who had many diseases. So it was a great success and now everywhere the disciples go as a result of that preaching mission... Uh, you can be sure that a large chain will follow. At the end of Mark 6, which again provides the background here, 
information that we need for the healing of the five, uh, the, the feeding of the five thousand. We're told that Jesus wanted to take his disciples away for rest, so he took them to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to a remote hill country. There's nothing around. There's no Ralphs. There's no Stater brothers. There's not even a Seven Eleven. They're eating MREs in the wilderness, basically. And uh, this crowd is there. And, and, and so the Word of God tells us that Jesus looked out at this crowd and he says he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus begins to preach the gospel to them, to teach them. And, and, and he preaches for so long uh, that the people don't have time now to go home and make dinner. So much for short sermons. Um, at that point, Jesus decides to provide them with a meal. He, he performs a miracle here. Uh, you, you can pick that up in, in verse 5. Jesus lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming, and said, Philip, uh, where are we going to buy bread? That's a very interesting question to ask for uh, Philip, because Philip lived in this remote area. And Philip would know where the best stores were. Uh, where the open-air markets were, where the supplies were to feed a crowd like this, the best restaurants. But Philip says, well, uh, there's no room here. Philip said it would cost uh, 200 denarii, that's eight months worth of the average man's wage, to just buy a little to feed this crowd. Andrew, Simon's brother, comes to him and said, Hey, look, I found this boy that had five loaves and two fish. You're aware of the story, I'm sure. This, this, this kid comes along who's got uh, a sack full of food for him. Five loaves and two fishes. A barley loaf was the absolute cheapest thing you could buy to feed and nourish yourself. It was the poor man's, poor man's meal. Barley loaves and sardines. Well, you know the miracle, Jesus blesses the bread and gives, and gives thanks, and, and, and there was enough there to feed 5,000 and take up 12 baskets afterwards. There was an abundant supply of food. That's miracle number one that stands behind our passage and leads to this discourse. These people, 5,000, and probably way more, because you're only counting men at that point. The Bible's very patriarchal. Only counting men. It, could, it didn't count the women and children most like there. Some scholars believe there were as many as 20,000 people there that day. Jesus feeds them so abundantly that they have to uh, take up leftovers. Uh, the people realize that something very unusual had happened here, by the way, because in verse 14 we're told, This truly is the prophet. They're thinking in terms of Deuteronomy 18, where God told Moses that after him, God would rise up a prophet uh, who would be greater than Moses. Uh, They see this action of Jesus in teaching and in supplying uh, miraculously all of these people with this bread. They know that there is something unique and mysterious about this person. And they say, this is the prophet. And in the next verse we're told in verse 15 that Jesus perceiving that they were intending uh, to take him by force and make him king, uh, he withdrew. You see, these people were so overcome with messianic enthusiasm that they said, hey, this is the Messiah. This is the one. So Jesus snuck away by himself, not with the disciples. And the the succeeding uh, verses tell us of another miracle. Uh, The disciples then 
uh, after everybody disperses, they jump in the boat, and they're going to go back over to the west side of the lake, back to Capernaum. We're told that uh, a great storm comes up. They're rowing away like crazy. It's the middle of the night. Uh, they can't get anywhere. All of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water. He gets in the boat. Boom, immediately, it hits the other side. Okay, that's about ten minutes worth of description to answer why John describes things as he does in verse 22. Come back to the verse. Hope your Bibles are open. The next day the crowd uh, that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no small other small boat there except the one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples in a boat and that his disciples had gone away alone. So they know something mysterious has happened here again because Jesus is already back over on the other side. We're told that those people got in their boats, rowed over, they get out of the boats, they step on the seashore, or the, the, the side of the, the shore there next to the lake, and, and, and here's what they say to Jesus as soon as they see him. Verse 25. Uh, Rabbi, when did you get here? And see, it's a question. Basically, it's a, it's a question of bewilderment. Not just when did you get here. How in the world did you get here? That's a good question. Yesterday you were feeding 5,000, you slipped through our hands, you went to the mountainside, we had no idea where you are, we wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, we find out that you're over here. What's going on? And Jesus begins to address them. And, and it's fascinating as you look at verse 26 here now, uh, that Jesus doesn't even respond to that question. He doesn't even respond to that question. He begins to unfold the truth about what they had seen in him. And that's going to bring us to our point here this morning, uh, the doctrine of irresistible grace. And we're first of all going to see in Jesus' own words uh, that no one can come to Jesus without the sovereign intervention of God. No one can come to Jesus, first of all. He says that in verse 44. Look there uh, with me in your Bibles. He says, no one can come to me I want to use that little phrase there as a window through which to look at these words of Jesus now in his exchange with these disciples. He says, no one can come. Let's keep that in mind as we come back to the question of verse 25. And they said, how did you get here? What's going on with you? And Jesus immediately responds by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you do not seek me because of signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus is saying to them, he's illustrating the truth here of total inability, the impossibility of anyone coming to God on their own. He says, you're not seeking me because of who I am. You're seeking me for your own selfish reasons. He says, because you were filled, because I provided you with food. Uh, and possibly he's also responding to the fact that they want him as a Messiah to uh, liberate them from the oppression of Rome. They're not seeking him for uh, the mysterious person that he is if they would have just paid any attention to the miracle the day before. You see, they were all fixated on the fact that he, he brought forth enough food out of five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people. They're not looking past that to say, what kind of person is this who can do that? They're not asking important questions about the character and nature of this mysterious person. Well, he goes on in verse 27 to admonish them. He says, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And Jesus says, stop thinking about barley loaves and sardines for a minute and start thinking about what the, the meaning of this miracle is. 
But yet there's food that will supply you on a day-to-day basis. That's our daily bread. God's not against it. He provides it for us, by the way. He's not arguing about that problem. But he's saying, lift your attention up from uh, mundane realities about material possessions and good and think about what really matters. Not liberation from Rome, but liberation from your sinful hearts. begins to work his way through this discourse in a question and answer form. They hear that in verse 28. says, they said to him, well, what shall we do? What shall we do so we may work the works of God? Now, why would they ask that question? Well, because Jesus said in verse 27, don't work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life. Uh, they're basically hearing him say, well, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And they say, well, what can we do then? And the accent of their, of their question is, well, what is it we can do? What good work can we do? What kind of good deeds can we perform? Uh, they imagine that eternal life is within their grasp. Something they can do for themselves. Some way they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Some sort of religious experience. They're willing to do it. You see... Remember, we're working with this issue that Jesus says here in verse 40. No one can come. They're not perceiving that. They're saying, well, what can we do? Thinking it's within their full power to respond. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work. Believe. You wonder, well, why does that particular statement of Jesus illustrate the truth that no one can come? Sounds like he is implying that they can believe. He says, here's what you need. Just believe. Stop all of your uh, works. Stop all of your external righteousness and self-righteousness and your ceremonialism. He said, just believe in me. How does that underscore no one can come? Well, you see it in their response. Well, what sign will you do for us? Verse 30. What sign do you do so that we may see and that we may believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven. You see, Jesus is saying, this is what you need. It's contrary to your understanding and expectation. What you need to do is believe in me. And this demonstrates their total inability because they say, well, why should we believe in you? They're basically saying, you need to do more for us. We need more bread and circuses. We need greater signs. Moses gave our fathers bread in the wilderness. Come on, if you were the prophet, if you were the Messiah, surely you can do something far more spectacular. You see, what Jesus is proving here in this discourse is that these people are utterly deluded. They are darkened in their understanding. They are also at the same time not only saying that they don't understand, they're saying they don't want Him. They don't want to believe exclusively in Him. They don't want to see Him for the Savior that He is, as the one who delivers from sin and opens up the eternal kingdom of God. They're looking for something different. I, I hope as you read through this discussion here, again in verse uh, 35, they go back and forth. Uh, they said, well, He says He's the bread of life that comes down from heaven. It's all fulfilled in Him. And then they say in verse uh, 34, always give us this bread. But Jesus sees right through that. He says, now. No, no, no. He said, you've seen me and yet you don't believe. 
Uh, this discussion illustrates their hardness, their imperceptiveness, their, their unwillingness really to come unto Jesus. And we know that Jesus is really the stumbling block to them because when you get to verse uh, 41 and 42, uh, we're told that they're grumbling in verse 41. They were grumbling about him because his, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they're saying, isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph? We know him and his mom and his dad and his brothers and sisters. See, the issue for them was that they didn't believe in Him. They could not possibly conceive that in Him is salvation. What's the explanation for that? What's the explanation for people seeing Jesus Christ and seeing His miracles and hearing His teaching, yet not believing? And that's the typical response of unbelievers to the gospel, by the way. The whole concept of Christianity. People say, well, if God would just do an amazing miracle right now, I'll believe. Never forget, uh, an illustration of that was in the infamous or famous uh, Greg Bonson-Gordon Stein debate. One atheist and one Christian. And, and Stein basically said, to, in response to uh, one of Bonson's questions, well, what would it take for you to believe? And he said, right now, if this podium, which is before me, were elevated to the ground, six feet above the ground, and then set back down, I would believe. That's what people think. If I could just see Jesus today and hear him preach and see who he was and put my hands on him and see the miracles that he performed, maybe I can heal one of my problems, I would believe. No, that's not the issue. All the testimony that we need is here in the Word, and we know that people who saw Him and touched Him and heard Him and felt or experienced His saving, His miraculous works, didn't believe Him either. Why? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 44, No one can come to Me. It's categorical. He says, No one. Or there's no exception to the rule. He says, Absolutely no one. The next word is can. That word is about ability. He says, no one is able. There's a total inability that Jesus says in the hearts of unbelievers, of people outside of Christ, born in Adam, there's a total inability to come to Him for salvation. That's what He means by that last word, come. Come to me for salvation. They can't do it. It's illustrated in these words of Jesus. It's illustrated towards the end of the discourse. Look at verse 60. I hope your Bibles are still open. It's illustrated at the end of the discourse. Verse 60 says, Therefore many of his disciples, that is this huge throng of people, these 5,000 people who are gathered there to hear him, when they heard this, this whole instruction about Jesus being uh, the bread of life who's come down from heaven, guess what the disciples say? It's a difficult statement. Who can hear it? Difficult. They're not saying, this is like calculus, man. I, my brain is just fried by this material. The gospel is not like uh, algorithms. It's not about advanced physics classes. Uh, Jesus says, it, it, it's just about this. Come unto me. The Son of God. Who took upon your very nature. And died on a cross. For your salvation, for your sins. Come unto me. What did they say to that? They said, this is difficult. 
It's not that it was too hard to understand. It literally means offensive. They were offended. They said, who would, who would be foolish enough to listen to this? Look at verse 66. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew. And they were not walking with him anymore. They were so offended by the truth that they left. That's what Jesus means in verse 44. You can't come to me unless unless something happens. You can't do it on your own. The people hear about about Jesus, they, they don't want him. They don't want to believe in him. They are scandalized by him. They are offended by him. They find in him a stumbling block. They want something else. They want something better. It reminds us here this morning that just because a lot of people gather together in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that there is actually a bunch of believers there. I want you to see here, and this is not even the point of my message here this morning, but I want you to see here that when Jesus preaches the hard truths of the word, people don't want it. I would rejoice to see 5,000 believers in the name of Christ gathering together in the same place, worshiping on a Sunday morning, as long as I know that the truth is going to be preached there. Because what we find is that when truth is preached, it's like a two-edged sword. It cuts open the heart. makes people aware of their sin. It either convicts them, And they become hardened and they fall away. Because they don't like the truth. They don't really like Jesus after all. Or they flee to him as a savior in whom alone there is salvation. People got the first part of irresistible grace is the truth which Jesus preaches here. No one can come. It's the truth that is illustrated here. No one can come. Since this is why it's so confusing to call it irresistible, lots of people resist it. That's not the point of what we're saying. All kinds of people hear the gospel and they say, not for me. That's not what we're saying about irresistible grace. What we're saying about irresistible grace is the second part. Unless. Verse 44 again. He says, no one can come to me unless. I love single words in the Bible, don't you? Unless. Therefore, consequently, is with the result that. Love those words. Because, wow, a whole ray of light begins to emerge. We're saying irresistible grace. It's true. Yes, some people hear it and they walk away from it. But what Arminians are saying about irresistible grace is ultimately salvation is in the power of the human individual and his will and his determination. And Jesus says, wrong. You can't do it. The only way you come to this grace is now in the unless. Look at it. Unless the Father who sent me draws. That is a very powerful word, by the way. Draw. It means... To grab somebody by the collar and jerk them by force. Listen to the uses of this word in just some of the verses in the Bible. We're told, John chapter 21, verse 11, that Peter threw in a net full of fish. He used for it, he dragged it in. 
We're told in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, that Paul and Silas were dragged in the middle of a riot that started because of them preaching the truth. They were dragged off before the judge of Philippi. Acts chapter 20, verse 30, again of Paul, the crowd got hold of him and dragged him into custody. We're told in James chapter 2, verse 6, that the rich oppressed the poor, the debtors, by dragging them into court. This isn't the language of gentle persuasion. It's force. Drag. It indicates the sovereign action of God in bringing somebody to Jesus. Jesus says, now this is so important, you can't come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws. You see, the whole question here is, how do you get to Jesus? How do you get to Jesus? The entire force of the expression is uh, that, that Jesus is not like, coming to him is not like uh, following a maze. And you go through uh, this maze and at each uh, spot along the way you pick up a new clue. And then eventually you get enough clues, 10, 12, 15, you finally figure out which, which way to turn in the maze until you finally get to the end. Now, Jesus says, you don't get there unless God lays hold of you and drags you to me. And you see, that's the same truth that is reinforced from a series of different angles throughout the Word of God to express the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation. Think about John 3. Turn over there with me. We won't turn to every one of these references. I'll read some of you. But you need to see this for yourself. John chapter 3. This is Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus about regeneration. And, and, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, it's impossible for you to see the kingdom of God unless you were born again. And then he explains, this is how someone is born again. He says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus says, this is how you are born again. It's just like the wind. You can't predict it. Uh, one minute it's coming out of the northeast, the next it's coming out of the southwest. You can't control the wind. I don't care how many uh, kinds of implements or tools that uh, smart people come up with. They will never be able to control the wind. It's a sovereign force. It, it, it blows where it will. That's what Jesus says. And he uses that as an analogy to describe the working of the Holy Spirit into salvation. He says, even so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's up to God. It's up to the sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. Another passage you could turn to is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul is preaching the gospel in Philippi. They're sitting alongside the riverbanks with a, with a group of lovely ladies uh, who don't have a church, who don't have a synagogue to go to, but they like to go there to read the word and to talk about it with each other. And the Apostle Paul goes out there to Philippi, and he begins preaching the Word. And the Word of God says in verse 14, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and note this, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. How did she respond? Was it because she put all the clues together for herself? Was it because she reached down and grabbed the strings of her bootstraps and pulled herself up? Was it because she had more insight? Was it because she was a more pious person? Was it because she was better than people? Was it because she was more open? 
No, we're told here that she responded to the preaching of the word because the Lord ripped open her heart. That's what the word means in the original. It's to grab hold of something and just rip it wide open. Sovereign intervention of God. That's why you're saved. Sovereign. No one can come to me unless the Father drags, rips open the heart. Same thing is said in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we're dead in our transgressions, made us alive. You see that? Paul had been talking in verses 1 through 3 about the total depravity of man. The fact that that depravity is indicated in spiritual deadness. That's the point where men are. And Paul says, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive. James chapter 1, verse 18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. By the exercise... How did you get brought forth? How did you come into conversion? How did you come into eternal life? How did you receive regeneration? By the exercise of His will. By the exercise of His will. No matter what angle you look at it from. Excuse me. No matter what angle you look at it from. Salvation. The experience of it. The coming unto Jesus. Is completely a sovereign act of God. And it has to be. Why? Because you're dead in your sins. That's what Jesus says. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. You know, he explains the death that is the result of sinfulness. And he says there, the mindset on the flesh is death. And then verse 7 he says, because, he's giving the reason why the mindset on the flesh is death. Because the flesh is hostile towards God. It's It's an enemy of God. It hates God. It's at war with God. And the fact that it's at war with God has been illustrated in the following clause in the next verse. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not able. Those who are in the flesh cannot. You see, why don't people come to Jesus when we talk about how a wonderful person he is? Again, you know, I don't ever tire of talking about how wonderful Jesus is. He's a friend. He's a savior. He's the kind of person who welcomes people like us to him. Every time you find Jesus in the gospel, he's either hanging out with drunks, tax collectors, or bad people. Prostitutes, you name it. They're all around Jesus. Bad people around Jesus. Not good people. In fact, the the good people can't stand Jesus. Every time you find a fight in the gospels, it's because good people are there and they don't like him. You can just stop and think about our gospel for a minute if you don't believe it. A marvelous gospel. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, would hang out with people who basically would hang out at the bowling alley. Not that people hang out at the bowling alley are bad people. It's just a, it's a colloquialism, okay? <laughs> I'm not condemning the PBA, okay? Um, I like to bowl. I'm bad at it. Uh, but, but the point of it is... Yeah, I need to come up with a better illustration than that, I suppose. The point of it is... How, how are they coming? Not because they were good. Not because they were upstanding people. Remember, his hardest words were for Nicodemus, chapter 3. 
Nicodemus, I don't care about your position. I don't care about your righteousness. I don't care about the fact you're the teacher of Israel. I don't care about the fact you're a Pharisee. I don't care about the fact you're in the Sanhedrin. I don't care about any of your self-righteousness. I don't care about your attainments of religion. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Not about who you are, what you've done, your accomplishments. Jesus says, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws. How does he draw? That's the last thing I want to say. It's, it's, it's accents to sovereignty as well. Verse 45. How are they going to come to him? How do they experience this drawing? Well, Jesus says in the next verse, it's written, verse 45, it's written in the prophets. And they shall come to me. They shall be able to be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you see that? Do you see how people are drawn sovereignly by God? They hear and they have learned from the Father. In other words, God uses means to draw people to Jesus. You know, coming to Jesus is not like catching a cold virus. It's not like we're just walking around... Next thing you know, uh, we picked up a germ and we're sick. Randomly. Unknowingly. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Father draws, the ordinary way in which He draws is under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. They have to hear and they have to learn from Him. Same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 10. How will they be saved unless the preacher be sent? Explained this before, that the reason why preaching is powerful is not because the preacher is good at it. It's not because his ability to make good arguments. It's not his clever stories or bad illustrations like I made. That's not the reason why people come to Jesus. It's because in the preaching of the word, Jesus speaks. That's what Paul says. And through the power of his voice, he calls people to himself efficaciously and sovereignly. How do they come? They come to the preached word. God uses the preached word to drag his people. So you say, well, I want to be saved. Well, how do you do that? You go to church. You hear the word of God proclaimed that God uses that word to drag people to Jesus. And the more that Jesus is proclaimed, the more people find him wonderful. The more they find him beautiful. The more they find in him that compassionate shepherd who loves his sheep and lays down his life for him. That's, that, that's, that's how it works. That's how people come to Jesus. Not by themselves. Dragged by the Father. Who sends forth the Spirit to accompany His preached word. And when He sets His sights on His believers. His elect. Whereas Jesus puts it in verse 37. All that are given to Him by the Father. They come. Let's wrap up with some application this morning. I think the first point of application is obvious. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. And, and you may say, well, you sound this morning, pastors in South Tell, like you're killing snakes up here. And I admit I am. Because uh, the predominant way of conceiving of how somebody comes to Jesus and into salvation in evangelicalism at large today is that you do it. Yeah, Jesus did some really cool stuff at the cross. But you do it. In the day is, you are the one that makes the final decision. 
It's all up to you. Won't you believe? And then you get these ten minute sob story, hand wringing altar calls, you know, come. The Father is pleading, the Son wants you, the Spirit is ready. That's what the Armenians were saying. Grace is resistible. It's up to you. No, it's not. It's not in this Bible. You may have a Bible that says that, but I challenge you to find one. It is the Bible that is recognized as the authoritative standard of truth for the church throughout the centuries, where it says a single place, it's up to you. Salvation is of the Lord. Jesus says it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, we're not Calvinists because we're following some guy in the 16th century. We're not Calvinists because we have a set of confessions that say certain things and we mindlessly subscribe to them. We believe the things that we do because the things that, are, uh, that we believe are in the Bible because Jesus said it. Jesus said it. No one can come. The only way they come is that the Father draws to the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. The only way they come is through the, the sovereign ripping open of believers' hearts like God did in Acts 16, 14 with Lydia. The only way they come is by God intervening in rich mercy according to rich Ephesians 2, 5. The only way they come is because by His own will they are brought forth in the light of James 1, 18. Salvation is of the Lord. 100%. And if you are one of God's children... You can be guaranteed this morning. You will come. And you will come at exactly the moment that God wants you to come. And He will do it all by His grace. And if it's all by His grace, 100% of the Lord, secondly, that means that God gets all the glory. That's another obvious truth, but we have to assert it. God gets all the glory for salvation. Do you realize that if it was up to man to respond... If it was up to man to respond, God's glory would be diminished in proportion to the work you do. Now, I want you to read the Bible, but I want you to think through the Bible that you have read. And does it ever say that God's glory will be diminished? No. But that would be the only logically true conclusion you could make. If I have a role... The glory of God will be diminished in proportion to the work that I do, and I will get some credit. I will get some glory. And that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 8 again. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, what? Lest any man should boast. The gospel is glory free for man, and all the glory to God. Finally, Irresistible grace is a means of deep assurance of salvation. One reason why someone may object to irresistible grace is the simple fact that they say to themselves, they have a wrong understanding of it because the proper understanding has been so clouded. But it may be that they say, you know what, I I believe. I believe in Jesus. 
I, I mean, I remember the point when I said, yes, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. And I, I believed in Him. I said, but, but how do I know I was drawn? How do I know I was drawn? Well, because Jesus tells you. Verse 64 and 65. That Jesus looking back at the fact that some of the disciples are grumbling, complaining, saying it's offensive truths. They don't believe. And Jesus says, I know there's some of you who don't believe. And verse 65 explains the reason. He says, I know some of you don't believe. And it's because of that I said, no one can come to the Father unless it's been granted to him. If you believe this morning, the only reason why you believe according to Jesus in John 6 and other places in the Word of God is because the Father granted it to you to come. You see, I said that irresistible grace leads to deep assurance of salvation. The only way you ever arrive at the foot of Christ trusted your life to Him savingly is because it was granted to you by the Father. Why aren't some believing? Why are some of these disciples turning away saying it's a hard truth? Why? Well, here's what's unpopular. Because God didn't grant it. But they didn't want it either. Remember that. They didn't want it either. They didn't want this Jesus. These Jews that are, that are grumbling and leaving and departing are the same ones who are saying, Oh, who is this Jesus after all? We know where he was born. We know his mother and father. They didn't want Jesus anyway. You say this morning, I'm not sure about this irresistible grace stuff because I kind of feel like I might want to believe. If that's you, I'm most concerned about you this morning. You say, I kind of want to believe, but now it feels like, Pastor Sattel, I can't really come. How can I be sure the Father's drawing me? Well, I think we have to rest on the words of Jesus in verse 65 again. No one can come to me unless it's been granted. Do you want to believe in Jesus this morning? Has your heart been moved by the truth of the Word of God? You say, oh, what a wonderful Savior. Well, the reason why you want that is because God has filled your heart with the truth. You don't want Jesus. Chapter illustrates it abundantly. Lots of people don't want Jesus when they find out about who he is and what he's claiming. The only people who want him is the people who God the Father is working at, teaching, so that they are learning. And then they are overwhelmed with a desire by God's grace to embrace him by faith. He grants it. By the way, that in a nutshell is what we mean when we say we believe in irresistible grace. God granted it. God drew. God draws. God changes. God converts. God regenerates. God calls. God does everything by His grace. Because he does that, people come unto him and they obtain that salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.